there's so many things you will not have thought of on your own that other people will think of. Never mind like identifying competitors that I have not heard of. And then you have to think about, mm. okay, well, how am I going to be different from them? That's another really important thing. I mm -hmm. think people need to give a lot of thought to is like, what else is out there and how are we going to be distinctive? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Freedom Feature. I'm your host, Barry Bussey. With me today, I have Lauren Huser, who just started up a newspaper outlet uh, called Canadian Affairs. Lauren, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me here, Barry. So, Lauren, I am very uh, interested in this project, and it's just so neat to be able to see that there's another voice out there for our audience. If you could just give a little bit of background about who you are and uh, why this is such an important project to you. Yes, I am originally from Manitoba. I grew up in small town Manitoba and actually Steinbeck, mm -hmm. and, which sometimes is in the news. And I right. moved to Toronto in 2009 to go to law school here. And then I ended up practicing mm. for several years before going into the journalism industry in 2015. And I've held mm. various roles. Um, I worked at the National Post. I, was, I did an internship at the Walrus, uh, so kind of different ends of the spectrum. And then I did an MBA abroad and joined a new startup in Paris after graduating as their chief strategy officer. So that was the role in which I really got to learn about the business side and the kind of strategy and operation side of a news organization. And that mm -hmm. plus the other work I'd done previously really laid the foundation for, for starting my own thing now. I'm happy to speak more about this throughout our conversation. Journalism is just very near and dear to my heart. And my entire time being in this industry, there's been a lot of talk about the crisis and that, that the industry is facing. And it's really fairly mm -hmm. acute right now with some of the legislation that's coming forth. But everyone's been talking about that for a long time for as long as i've been actually kind of working in the industry but I, but i'm actually fairly optimistic mm. about the future for news and i wouldn't have started a news publication if i wasn't but i think right. the models are just clearly have they have to be different than what legacy publications kind of built their businesses on in the past right so tell me what is it about lawyers that we love news so much because i find myself the same way, you know, I, I did a undergrad and then graduate work in political science before I went to, well, actually I did my graduate work in political science after law school, oh. but what is it about lawyers and news? That's the attraction. Yeah, well, I think so often lawyers are interested in policy and then most lawyers will tell you, I love to argue, I love to write, that's, that's what you often hear. And I think that kind of adversarial or sort of critical mindset that lawyers have journalists also have often that kind of skeptical outlook uh, and then they get to write about mm. it and they get to kind of make it their life's work so there are tons of parallels and i think certainly when i was in legal practice what i enjoyed was uh, the policy work files that had a mm. kind of broader policy dimension to them and similarly right. with journalism for me the kind of journalism that's really interesting is journalism that is about the issues that really affect Canada and the place, the society we live in. And, and so for me, there's just tons of overlap between those fields. And I think that's why we see so many journalists kind of dappling in it in one way or another. 
sorry, lawyer staff playing yeah. journalists. I think of, uh, for example, many of the revolutionary movements uh, throughout history have had a lot of lawyers involved, whether it's the French Revolution or the American Revolution. Uh, lawyers do seem to have the corner of bright new ideas. Let's try to change society for the better kind of thing. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So small town Manitoba. And obviously, from that background, you know, you have importance of community, importance of various traditions and that kind of thing. What is it that attracted you to come to a uh, big city of Toronto? So I applied to law schools, just three of them. One was in Manitoba, the only one in Manitoba. Mm -hmm. And then I think I wanted to stretch myself a bit. And then so I applied also to Toronto and, and McGill and I had never been to Toronto. And then I got in. And so you, then I started to think seriously about it. And, and it's interesting because my dad at the time said, are you sure, you know, it's, it's that much money versus Manitoba, which is this much money. I think when you're in Manitoba, because there are a cluster of schools there, there's just one, there isn't the same level of comparison right. that goes on in the legal community that goes on here in Toronto, where anytime you meet a lawyer, pretty much within the first five questions, they want to know where you went to law school, right? So I think, I think there's more <laughs> benchmarking that happens in the Ontario legal community than happens in Manitoba. Mm. And so I think for someone like my dad, who grew up out West, where there isn't that same obsession with the name and the brand right. of the school, he said, why would you go away? You're not really thinking about those. And I wasn't thinking about those considerations too much either. But I think it was just an opportunity to kind of go somewhere else and do something different. And when I left, I really thought at the time, my plan was to come back to Manitoba, the second year summer jobs where they have the on-campus interviews. Manitobas mm. occur after the University of Toronto's. And so, you know, you go through oh, the okay. U of T's, you get some offers, you're not going to then consider an, an offer from a Manitoba place. And then, you know, way leads on to way. And then suddenly you're articling here and then you meet people here and then you stay. So that's how things work. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> from Newfoundland. So I came from a small town as well. I didn't know that about I got, you. got accepted in. Yeah, yes. Yeah, I'm a full-fledged Newfie, let me tell you. And a lot of people say to me, well, Barry, how come you don't have a Newfie yeah. accent? Well, I do have a Newfie <laughs> accent. It's just that, it's, it's just kind of weird. I, I must just mimic the place I I live because I just, you know, kind of adopted how people speak up here. But when I go back home, it's extremely important. And for those of you who are watching from home, uh, you will know this, of course, that uh, when when a son or a daughter of Newfoundland comes back home, we have to get right back into the accent again, because if not, we're going to be considered. So that's uh, important. But but anyhow, the thing is that I ended up coming up to Ontario for, for law school at Western and, and ended up ultimately coming back here. Although I did go back to Newfoundland for a little bit and practice down there for four years or so, and then came back up. But let me just get into the reason why we have this sure. conversation. And that is, you've started up Canadian Affairs. Yes. Now, can you tell us what makes Canadian Affairs so unique and different? And what is it you're trying to accomplish? Yes, a couple things. So first of all, we're really clear about the audiences we are speaking to I say this every day, pretty much based on who I'm speaking to, but uh, Canadian professionals and Canadian families. And by professionals, we really, in general, mean people in the regulated professions. And then by mm -hmm. Canadian families, 
that can take a lot of forms, but primarily we're thinking about parents and people who are thinking about their kids' well-being and, and their family's well-being and their pocketbooks. And that focus around our audiences really guides our editorial strategy because it gives us then the ability to say, no, we're not going to cover this, even if it's important. This is probably not kind of the dinner table issue that people with kids are talking about. And because we're small mm. and any new digital news startup, it tends to be small. You need to have, I think, that focus because you don't have the bandwidth to cover everything. The example I gave to people at the time that we were conducting interviews for the reporter roles was the Chinese interference issue was very large in the news. And that's an obviously right. important issue, but it probably wouldn't be one that we would be assigning a lot of our reporters to or spending a lot of time covering. Because I actually think, you know, at the same time, cost of living, for example, is probably more top of mind to people who are dealing with raising kids in these expensive cities that we live in. Uh, So I think it brings Mm. focus to what we do. I think it differentiates differentiates us from some of the other players out there. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing I'll say that is focus of our organization is reported journalism. So there are a lot of startups out there. And I did a pretty comprehensive survey of the landscape before I really started thinking seriously about launching Canadian Affairs. And there Mm -hmm. are great startups out there. There's The Line, there's The Hub. I haven't followed them as much, but, you know, there's True North. On the left end of the spectrum, there are, there's The Taiyi. They do investigative and stuff. But anyway, my point is a lot of the, a lot of the startups are kind of commentary focused. And what I wanted to come out and Mm. have be kind of core to our mission from day one is reported journalism because uh, that's where there have been a lot of cuts in recent years. And I worked at the National Post, so I kind of saw firsthand, you know, commentary is a lot less expensive to run than reported mm-hmm. journalism. And so I think where the, there is a real need is to have people just reporting on the ground and striving to be balanced and accurate and fair. Uh, so, so that's how I would say we are somewhat different from both some of the the newer startups, as well as even something like the National Post, where, of course, they still have reported journalism. But I think if you spend much time on their homepage, really, you'll see more opinion now than uh, reported stories being broken by their own reporters. That's interesting, because I I look at certainly as uh, a consumer of the news, Mm -hmm. I would have to say that I've become more and more looking for those pieces that are more or less in line with my view. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, you know, and, and I have to fight against that because I also want to get what the other side mm-hmm. is saying on whatever the issue is. Mm-hmm. And so I guess in some ways, the commentary approach or, you know, the, the opinion pieces, the op-eds are kind of like catnip then, according to the, for the finances of the news organization, because oftentimes, and I'm sure you have as well as myself, we've done a lot of op-ed pieces over the years and it's like, okay, well, I mean, you don't get anything for it. It's just, it's just nice to see your name in the, in the paper, I suppose, in some ways. Uh, But, you know, because you've got a bigger purpose than just the money. So a lot of the newspapers are not even paying for that material that is now becoming a bigger piece of the pie for their operation. And I, I think this goes again to how we plan to over the long term differentiate ourselves is that we have a different business model. So the, the National Post 
because they have in general not been very effective at having a hard paywall to them where they're very ad reliant it is important to have the commentary because commentary is what brings in a ton of views it's going to create a much higher surge in traffic than any kind of serious reported policy piece uh, so it is very important mm. to their business model but for us we're trying to establish from day one that we're focused on reported journalism and if you look at i think the great newspapers in the world like the financial times which i became a really big fan of when i was doing my mba they have mm -hmm. they charge a hefty monthly fee i should say but they do terrific reported journalism and i would love to get to a place where we're doing journalism of that quality where it is so well written that it engages me as much as a good commentary piece because i think back in the day and i, I you know i've worked for the national post commentary section in the past so i know I, I know well the value of opinion writing, and I, I take a lot of pleasure in reading something that's super well written by a good opinion writer. So there's absolutely value there. Um, but I think before I really got into high quality subscription-based papers, I hadn't learned to appreciate that reported journalism really can be as good to read as a fun comment piece. And that's what we're aiming to do at, at Canadian Affairs is really run and publish pieces that are concise, that are kind of impactful, that leverage great sources, all that stuff that you see, uh, see at other papers. Admittedly, very hard to do. We have a small team and those places have large teams, but the goal is to kind of grow mm -hmm. incrementally as we sell subscriptions. So is that the model or the financial model that is supporting it is subscriptions or do you have any backers at all or uh, just uh, ads or yeah so initially it's just my husband and i who are putting up the, the money uh for this and mm -hmm. our expectation is that we're going to be loss making for a couple of years uh, because we have brought on a small team of reporters and so our goal is to hit i think fairly modest subscriber targets over the next couple of years so that we can get mm -hmm. to a place where we're at least breaking even and then grow from there so there are as you maybe know there is now government supports for hiring journalists and editors so that offsets some of the costs of of employing people but it's certainly i'm working probably for free for a little while here but but it's at least fun and the right. labor of love as i'm sure you can appreciate with this podcast thing and truth be told i didn't spend any time trying to find investors to back this and i think in a couple of years time, if that's necessary, I would then start looking. But uh, I know mm. that this industry is so incredibly fraught that I think I could have spent a whole year just trying to find people to put up the money. And I think I would have yeah. felt more kind of beholden to those interests than like, I'd rather lose my own money than someone else's money. Uh, I guess I'll put it that way. And this concept of beholding, one of the criticisms of government subsidizing news organizations today is, in fact, that people are concerned that, well, the government now, if they're going to be supporting the organization, then they will, in essence, or at least there, there is almost even perhaps a, a subconscious, perhaps, thinking, well, I better not say anything to offend the, the hand that feeds mm -hmm. me. I, wh wh what do you say to that criticism? Yeah, I really don't like any of these government measures. I would prefer actually not to have them ex in existence at all. And I still think I would have made a go of this this venture. 
but once they're on the table mm -hmm. and you know everyone makes the same point you're kind of at a disadvantage then to not take them if all your competitors are taking these subsidies uh i think the issue is now that they're here they'll you'll never ever be able to get rid of them you know the newsrooms will become completely dependent on them and for all the reasons people have said it's not good it's not good for journalists whose job it is to cover the government to be beholden to the government i i don't like it I think the, the Globe came out with an editorial this week saying what we should really support is more generous digital tax subscription credits for people who purchase news subscriptions. And I, I would be all for that. Mm. They're actually quite modest currently. And so mm. a measure like that I'm in favor of. But I think the vast majority of what the government has been doing to try and help news publications, and they're really only they're really predominantly helping the legacy publications, which probably need to be let to fail, are very harmful and, and are going to be very hard to get rid of if, if, if impossible. So basically, are you of the opinion then that should your principles be violated by a government bureaucrat saying, hey, by the way, Lauren, uh, we're not too happy with what you've uh, printed over here, or maybe there's going to be a reduction in the amount of money that goes your way. What would be your response to any of that kind of interference? And that's, I, I don't know if any such thing exists, mm -hmm. but it, the potential is definitely there. Yes, I mean, the potential is there. And I think if that happened, then I'd like to say, and I, I believe it, but I, I would like to believe as well that that I would then walk away from the money and, and keep doing what we, we needed to do. I think when it's in a position where we're in right now, where we're you know, anticipating losses for the next couple of years. And these subsidies account for a fairly significant am amount of money to enable us to get to break even so we can keep going as a viable company. It's hard to turn away that money. But I think, you know, or organizations need to be prepared to kind of stand on principle if they were challenged and, and if there was a threat of their money being withdrawn. But as I understand it, so far the government, sorry, this committee that makes these decisions around who's a QCJO has been fairly reluctant to kind of wade too far into the line of what's acceptable journalism and what's not. That's my understanding so far, but I'd be interested if you have heard otherwise. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I haven't as of yet, but I'm, you know, already thinking of the various governments' positions on, on the various issues. You know, you can list a, a whole bunch of them, but at any given time, the government has made, for example, in the past, um, a lot of religious communities for, uh, were denied uh, Canada summer jobs funding simply because they wouldn't agree to the government's uh, list of of uh, ideological positions mm -hmm. that they found unpalatable, mm -hmm. and so they never got funding. Mm -hmm. And one would, uh, you know, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that if if any uh, newspaper organization that has been receiving government funding and the government uh, somehow feels that the various positions of the organization is at odds with the government's stand on whatever ideological position that's at issue at that given time, uh, that one would suspect that government would say, hey, you know, perhaps there's no money should, should be going there because it's going against where we want to be, yep. you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think that there, there is that risk and, and uh, certainly this government has, this federal government has not been reluctant to kind of use the stick of funding and things like that to ensure that organizations that 
have values that align with its own receive its funding. We have just a couple of minutes uh, right now, but I'm just wondering if you could just share some of the lessons that you've learned in starting up, because one of the things that we are doing here at First Freedoms is we're strong supporters of freedom of speech. Mm -hmm. And obviously a a news organization like yours just starting up, uh, there may be others out there who are listening and say, hey, you know what, I'd like to be a voice as well to start up uh, some kind of a news organization mm-hmm. or uh, have a particular field or an interest that needs to be addressed that's not being addressed by others. Uh, what would be the advice you would give them? That? Well, I have found it incredibly helpful to speak to people over the last seven months. I've been working on this for about seven months before I launched. And in the first mm-hmm. two to three, I, after having drawn up my own spreadsheet and business plan, I then started to speak to people. and. Initially, I was just speaking with people who had formerly been in legacy or are in legacy media, or that's the world they're from. And then I realized, no, I really mm. need to speak to people who have done the, the the startup thing and have made a go of it and have been successful at it. And not surprisingly, their advice and encouragement was very different from people speaking to people in the legacy industry who tended to be very pessimistic and said, I wouldn't. I wouldn't touch this if I were you. So uh, the, the reason that those conversations were so helpful is that it, it really helped me to address weaknesses in the business plan, to tweak little things uh, about the, the strategy, to get contacts. Like it's what led to me hiring uh, my managing editor. It was through a contact that I, we have a religion reporter who's based in Winnipeg. And one of the areas mm. that uh, we're planning to cover at Canadian Affairs is religion and specifically religion reporting. And so, because this is actually an undercovered area in news mm. today, most newsrooms have, have long got rid of their religion reporters. And so I was doing some research on who covers religion anymore. And then I, I came across the name of John Longhurst, who, who is a columnist for the Winnipeg Free Press. Um, and I reached yes, out no to doubt. him just to kind of find out if he uh, knew people in the field. And he said, actually, I'd love to write for you. And then he's also the one who put me in touch with Julie Carl because she had been deputy editor, editor at the Winnipeg Free Press while uh, they were both there. And, and so those okay. kinds of conversations and reaching out to people is, was r- very important for, like I said, tweaking the business plan. Mm. And then also making connections and and uh, building the team. So that's what I would mm. say to people who are thinking about a startup: is don't op your don't operate in a vacuum. Like it was very scary to go from mm. that stage of okay, here's my business plan and um, here's my spreadsheet to actually asking people for input. I also, for example, put mm. out a survey to about forty friends who fit the target target profile of who Canadian affairs is going to be kind of speaking to. And it was very hard to go to that step of soliciting input and feedback because you're not sure if anything's going to come of it. You're you're not sure if this will seem kind of ridiculous, but then the more you do it, the more confident you get. And it really makes things, I think it really positions you a lot better down the road once you actually launch because you there's so many things you will not have thought of on your own that other people will think of never mind like identifying competitors that i have not heard of and then you have to think about Mm. okay well how am i going to be different from them that's another really important thing i Mm -hmm. think people need to give a lot of thought to is like what else is out there and how are we going to be distinctive 
Okay, excellent. Well, thank you for that. I would like to continue our conversation. We have some issues uh, in particular with the government's recent legislation to pass Bill C-11, Bill uh, C-18, and then also other legislation that the government is planning on uh, uh, putting in the way of, um, I would say, free speech. And I'm wondering if you'd be willing to join me for that conversation yes, as well. Yes, thank you. We're going to close off here now, but is there any uh, final comment on our discussion right now on starting up a business news outlet that you would like to share with our listeners at this time? And by the way, can you also tell us how people can get to your information and what's your website? Uh, yes, thank you. Uh, so I'll say that first so I don't forget. It's www.canadianaffairs.news. That's the key part is the .news, not .ca. Okay. And then I'd encourage people to follow us on on all the social media channels as well and sign up for our newsletters. Any last bits of advice? It's not for the faint of heart. I've had many sleepless nights, uh, <laughs> but uh, I yeah, am having I fun. Imagine. I am having fun. Good. So a labor of love. Yes. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. Okay, folks, I want to thank you for being with us as we've talked about this new startup, CanadianAffairs.News. Make sure you go over and have a look. And also, I'd encourage you to like and subscribe here on our channels. Until next time, I'm Barry Bussey. The fight for freedom consists not only in the legal battles in court, but also in the battle of ideas at the universities and in the media. It takes time, effort, and money to keep on top of the debates for freedom. Your donation allows us to keep fighting for all Canadians. Firstfreedoms.ca